Well, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't, to James chapter 4, the text that Ben just read for us. I want to suggest that this text is the beating heart of James's letter. If we miss what James is saying here, the rest of the letter does us very little good. So we, we have to attend carefully to what James is getting at here. Um, up until this point in the letter, James has focused on calling people who make claims to faith and virtue to put it into action in their lives. So if you say that you have the word of God, put it into practice. If, you're, if you say that you're religious, actually do true, truly religious things. Love other people. Remain unspotted from the world. If you, ha- if you have faith, if you say you have faith, put it into action. If you have wisdom, demonstrate it with Christ-like gentleness. So he's been saying, if you're claiming to have something on the inside, make sure you show it on the outside. Now he reverse engineers it, and he starts describing what he sees on the outside and makes a connection between their action and what's inside their hearts, even though they aren't saying it's there. So you see what he's done. He's shifted from saying, make your claims evident through your action, and now he's looking at their action and diagnosing it to reveal sins of the heart. The picture in this text is not very pretty, though especially if we were going to stop at verse 3. We're going to keep going all the way down to verse 10 because we don't want to leave depressed, all right? But it's a messed up situation. Now, remember, James is writing a general letter to churches all over the place, so he's not thinking of a specific instance here, but he's saying churches tend to become quarrelsome and externally troubled in their interpersonal relationships. They fail to live like Christians. And the problem isn't just with their behavior, it's what's going on in their hearts. And then he'll go on to reveal a surprising solution to the heart problem. It's not a solution that you or I would script. It's something that we probably wouldn't have even thought about, except for that James is pointing it out here. So, This morning, we'll observe what our biggest problem actually is, and then we'll consider the ultimate solution to that problem, and then we'll consider two options that we have once we know what the solution is. Because once you find out the solution, you've got to do something with it. All right, so let's begin by considering our sinful hearts as our biggest problem. Our hearts are our deepest problem. Have you ever been in a situation where there's a problem that everyone knows about, and they're looking for someone to solve it, and then the manager walks into the room, they quickly assess it, and they give a quick solution to it, but a few days later, the problem resurfaces all over again because the quick fix didn't really fix anything at all. Um, This is what happens when the dash light, the check engine light goes on your car, and you just put a piece of tape over it. It gets it out of your mind for a minute, but the problem is still there. Uh, This is what happens when you come up with a jerry-rig solution for whatever that problem is with your faucet where it won't turn off, but if you like turn it to just the right angle and lift it just a little bit and then push down hard, it will stop dripping. Well, it doesn't actually solve the problem. It just kicks the can down the road a little bit. Well, what we do in our everyday life in those kind of circumstances, we also do in our life before God. There are problems 
and we come up with a janky, quick-fix solution, and it doesn't actually take care of the problem. And usually, it makes the problem worse. Um, that, that's how quick fixes always go. You do a quick duct tape lashing job, and you just ruin the product with all the goo of the thing, and now you can't actually fix it, and you've got to replace the whole thing. But we do that, spiritually speaking, all the time. We come up with a quick fix that doesn't really work. So we avoid the people that we're quarreling with because we just don't want to deal with the issue. Um, We chalk up our explosion in anger to just a temporary lapse in our sanctification. That's probably just because we didn't get our coffee yet this morning. This, This is what James is describing. Christians who are living in unchristian ways and who are prescribing quick solutions, which are not solutions at all. Now, when we read this text, and James talks about wars and fightings and murders, and then later on in the text for next week in 11 and 12, where he talks about criticism and defamation and judgmentalism, he uses really loaded language. You know, are we to imagine that Christians were murdering each other in the assembly to get what they want? Uh, You know, sometimes Christians sin in that way, but I don't think that's the case. You know, James would have spent more than uh, just one line on it if Christians were murdering each other. I I think what he's doing is he's adopting the language of his brother, Jesus, who correlated anger in your heart with murdering someone else. So he's using hyperbolic language to describe external action that reveals the depth of sin in the heart. He's helping us stop doing what we're so prone to do, which is to downplay the seriousness of our sin. One way that he can do that is by shedding a light on it to show us that the same way that murder is a violation of the Ten Commandments, so too is our anger a violation of the re-giving of the law by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We're lawbreakers before Christ. Our sin is actually serious. So he just uses stark language to get that across. Now, when we start to observe these things, um, we, we need to catch on to what he's getting at. Over and over again, he's trying to show that the underlying problem is in your heart. It's a problem of conflicting desires. So he does this with some quick descriptions. So first, he points out that the relational conflict in the assembly originates in the deep, frustrated desires in the individual people who are part of that church, from the passions that wage war within a person. Um, He's focusing on relationships in the church. He's just saying, you desire and you don't have. Each of you want what you want, and other people want what they want, and those conflicts, are, those conflicting desires are coming to a head, so there's interpersonal conflict. Um, And then he goes on in verse 2, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. Again, he's not saying people are murdering in the assembly, probably. He's just using hyperbolic language here to say that there are individuals who just want what they want, and they're willing to crush people to get it. They're, They're willing to run them over on the way to getting whatever it is that they're coveting, whatever it is that they're desiring. His whole point is that the relational conflict you see in the church is a problem, But it has a deeper problem, and that's because every single person is elevating their desires over the good of the other person. Um, He doesn't get into the details here, but it's kind of like if you imagine, and some of you don't have to imagine hard because you live this on the regular, two children in a room who all of a sudden start like screaming at each other and quarreling, 
and you walk in there and you try to figure out what's going on. And really, you don't even need to get too far because you know what's going on. Even though one kid might say, well, she took that from me. And the other kid says, well, I had it first. Really, you just know that here are two kids who just want what they want. And they're willing to violate love and kindness to their sibling in order to get it. Well, that's true with five-year-olds, but it's also true with 35-year-olds in the assembly. When there's conflict in a church, the same root problem is there. We just want what we want, and we don't care what it's going to take to get it. So he points out that there are desires here. They're unmet, and people are in conflict trying to get them. But these desires have become so strong. They've become so strong that these people are not even able to pray to God to ask him to meet those desires anymore. That's because they've, they've taken their desires and they've made it ultimate. It's almost as if they've replaced God by instead of caring about what God desires and what God wants, they only care about what they want. So they're not even asking God for it anymore. Well, what do we call it when we take our desires and we make them ultimate? We call that idolatry. It's a kind of spiritual idolatry where we replace God and his desire with our own desire. Now, sometimes those desires might be good for good things. But that's the tricky part about idolatry, is that we can desire a good thing, but then we can make it an ultimate thing and replace God with it. And and we turn away from God altogether so much so that we don't even talk to him anymore. You you want it and you don't have it because you're not asking God for it. But the problems get worse because some of them are asking God and they're still not receiving it. And this is why. Because they're asking with wrong motives so they can spend it on their own passions. People who are asking God for what they want, well, they they don't really want God in the asking. They want to manipulate God so that he'll give them whatever they want. He's their genie in a bottle. He's their person now, not even a true deity that they're going to manipulate. They can't manipulate the other people in the church. So let's try to manipulate God who has power over the other people in the church. They ask, but they ask selfishly, wanting to use God, but not really wanting God at all. I think this is the difference between being demanding of God and being dependent on God. People who are dependent on God want God in their life, and they understand that God meets them through many ways, often through meeting desires, supplying needs. But there's a difference between being dependent and being demanding grasping, trying to force God to give us what we want. Now, without getting too far off track, I think it's important to know that the problem isn't desire itself. God created us with desires. If we didn't have desire, we would all die because it's desire that makes us move and do things and love. Um, If you didn't have desire for food, you would never eat and you would waste away. The problem is this. We take those good desires that God gives us, and and we latch onto things. And even when God supplies things that meet our desires, and we can say things like, I'm completely satisfied, there's part of us that's never completely satisfied. There's a little bit of us that's still wanting a little bit more, and we can't even put our finger quite on what that want is for. So we start to think that the want is for the thing that we already have, And then we consume it, we spend it on our passions. So we desire comfort and relaxation, which is generally a good gift from God. And God gives us that in ice cream and popcorn or whatever else the case might be. 
And as we sit there eating our ice cream or watching our TV show, and we can say, this is so good. Thank God for this. I'm completely satisfied until we're not. Because God doesn't take away our desire or it would kill us. Instead, he gives us himself and says, keep desiring me and I will keep meeting your desire. But what we do instead of continuing to find the satisfaction of desire in God is we try to make the things we have meet that lurking desire. And so we binge through that TV show. We eat not through a bowl of ice cream, but through the whole thing on the way to finding comfort. We, we try to make things satisfy the unsatisfiable desire. We try to make things do what only God can do. And then when we can't get them to do that, and we can't get other people to do that for us, we end up with the kind of conflict James describes in this text. So the problem isn't with desire, but trying to find that, desi- that desire's meeting in things that can never meet it. So we burn through them. The point is this, that we will always have desires that can't be met, which will make us restless until we find our rest in God, as that theologian Augustine put it. So, so the problem isn't with the things. It's making the things replace God, and they can never do that. So the problem is not just presenting behaviors, but it's actually what's going on in our heart. Now, I want to talk about this for so much longer than I can this morning. So what I'm going to do is on, t- on October 9th in Bible class, I'm going to talk about desire and diagnosing our sinful behavior to get down to that desire, thinking about how desire works a little bit more. Uh, so we had an open slot that week. So if you want to think about this more, come back to that Bible class on October 9th, and we'll talk about it in a little bit more depth. But I want to give us at least three responses from the basic realization that our external actions aren't the biggest problem, but our sinful hearts are the biggest problem. First, we should recognize that our behavior, our sinful behavior, is actually sinful. Like, it's actually bad for you to be in conflict with other people. It's actually bad for you to sin externally. Um, We shouldn't minimize that. I'm concerned that many of us don't realize how sinful our behavior actually is. We forget about it so quickly. We move on. We distract ourselves with something else. Um, When we engage in interpersonal conflict of the kind described here, that, that should be a flashing warning light that there's a problem in our heart, but we don't pay attention to it because what we can do is when we leave our moment of relational conflict or when we exchange those hurtful text messages on our phone, what we do is we pop in headphones and turn on music or podcasts or something else and we forget about that conversation. So, so I want to say when there's sinful behavior, realize that it's actually sinful. Don't just walk away from it. Now I know that some of you are overly introspective. So what I'm about to say next, um, take as you should take it. But when you detect sinful behaviors in your life, you need to stop and evaluate them and work inward from the external behavior to what's going on in the heart. Trace through what does my action say about what I actually am desiring. So ask yourself the question, what did I really want? And and keep asking that question until you get to the real answer. Um, there was a situation in my life this past week where I had a conversation, quote-unquote, um, and walking away from that conversation, 
there was part of me that knew I'm in the wrong here. And, and I, because God has me preaching this text this week, I had to ask myself, what did I really want? And the first couple times I asked that question, I came up with very righteous answers. Um, I wanted blank in the service of God. Well, that's not what I wanted by the like fifth time I worked the way down. What I really wanted is not to be inconvenienced and for someone else to care about me and my schedule as much as I care about it. Do you, do you see how we have to keep asking that question to get down to the actual desire that's at play? And then even there, that desire is probably not operating by itself. Because I think even more than me wanting a convenient schedule and comfortability is I want other people to think that I have my life perfectly together. Because, because I think people will only value me if I present myself in a particular way. So if someone gets in the way of me being accepted by other people, I'm going to lash out at them. Do, do you see how multiple desires can be at work and we have to identify them or else we're never actually going to deal with the real problem. We'll deal with a slight scheduling error. We won't deal with the real desires of our heart. Now, number three, when you detect this behavior and you consider the desires of your heart, we do need to employ some stop-gap measures. There, there are times when it's right just to say, stop it, stop the behavior, don't keep doing this. This is bad, this is wrong, there's a lot lurking beneath the service, and we're going to have to sort that out. But ultimately, like in this moment, we just need to stop sinning. We, we need to lean into whatever resources we have to cut that sin off. Um, any non-Christian can do this, so Christians should especially be able to do this. Okay, so in another life, I worked as a program director for group homes for people with brain injuries. And my whole job was to evaluate these people and then to put together different programs that they would work through for behavior modification. Um, so uh, behavior modification psychology was the name of my profession. And, and we could get people to change really entrenched behaviors through leaning into the way that God designed the brain. Well, Christians should be doing that. You should think about the way that habits are formed. You should think about the way that the brain works. So read books like the power of habit, or your future self will thank you. Think about the way God created this universe and created you so that you can cut off behaviors that are detrimental to yourself and other people and that ultimately don't glorify God. Christians, though, have to go deeper and confess sinful desires that are underneath those behaviors. Now, I want to suggest, though, behavioral modification isn't the end of the solution. It's just the start. Now, if we were to write the next portion of James, I think we might be tempted to stop with behavior modification. We might be tempted to end the exhortation with a stop it. Just be different. Just want something else. Just stop, stop being frustrating to the people around you. Just stop. I, I think that's where most of us end our spiritual discipline in discipleship. But that's not where James ends because he realizes the problem is deeper than just behavior. So we need a deeper solution. He's going to show us that actually seeing God's heart is our ultimate solution. Seeing and responding to the heart of God 
is the ultimate solution. Now, it's going to take some thinking in a few moments for me to show that James is doing this, but stick with me. He begins kind of strangely, and it will make sense in a minute, but he begins by leveraging this accusation. He says, you adulterous people. Well, that doesn't sound like a very convincing way to change behavior and to transform hearts. But if you are using the Christian Standard Bible, um, you'll see that there's a footnote there. And James actually says, you adulteresses. Now, I don't think that James is pointing out that there's adultery in the assembly. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Um, and, And he's not just talking to the women in the church. And he's not calling them adulteresses as a put-down to women or something like that, or trying to communicate that wives are more prone to sexual immorality than husbands. That's not what he's saying. What he is doing is alluding backwards to imagery in the Old Testament where Israel was described as God's bride. And when Israel would leave God and start worshiping idols, God would talk about being jealous for them. And he would say that they were committing adultery because instead of finding love in God, they were demonstrating love and trying to receive satisfaction from these idols. So James here with this accusation of adultery is simply saying to the church, look, you are the bride of Christ. You've been united to God by the Spirit, but you're committing spiritual idolatry and it amounts to adultery. You're being unfaithful to Christ. That, that's what your sin looks like to God. So to you, it just looks like interpersonal conflict. To you, it just looks like chasing after whatever you want. But to God, it feels like adultery. It feels like unfaithfulness. When we're willing to give our hearts over to whatever it is that we think will satisfy and we start, stop giving our hearts over to God, we're committing spiritual adultery. Now, you might be thinking, well, if James is alluding to the Old Testament, and he's calling blatant idolatry adultery there, we're, we can't be guilty of committing adultery because none of us are worshiping idols. I mean, maybe some of you are. Um, if you've been tempted to pray to Allah or to make sacrifices to an idol, We can talk, but I don't think most of us are doing that. Instead, I think what we're doing, what James describes in the next verse, there he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Now, I I would phrase that a little bit differently because of the marriage metaphor that's being used. And because this term that's used here is friendship, can take place in sexual immorality contexts, like in Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 7, I would want to say it something like this. Don't you know that flirtation with the world is hostility with God? I, I think that's what James is getting at. So you can imagine a situation where you're talking to a coworker or something, and you realize that this coworker has um, been really, really flirty with another coworker. But you know that this coworker's married. Um, and, and you kind of talk to them like, hey, you, it seems like you're crossing some lines. Like, I, I know you, I know your spouse, I know you're married. Like, what are you doing? And this person says, well, it's just harmless flirtation. You know, and, and over time, it, they're like, well, it's just an emotional affair. It's not actually a physical affair. I'm not committing blatant immorality. 
Well, I think that's what we do with a world system. Instead of chasing after God and living according to his values, we start to flirt with the values of the world. We start to see what the world offers us if we'll just adopt their way of operating. And we don't fully leave the faith. We don't fully worship idols. We don't fully give ourselves over to these things. But we grab onto core ideas about what the world would say is good and true and beautiful when God says that's ugly, that's sinful. So flirtation might not seem like spiritual adultery, but it really is in God's eyes. In the same way that if your spouse, if you have one, was having an emotional affair, that, that would put a hostility between you and your spouse in just saying, well, it never got physical, so it doesn't matter, wouldn't do away with the problem. When we start to court the world, when we flirt with the world's value system, when we start to adopt the world's way of operating that's grounded in power, in being whoever you want to be, and doing whatever you want to do, instead of grounding your way of operating in love and giving to others and considering others as more significant than yourselves, when you start to flirt with the way, world's way of operating, and, and then you assign it for the purpose of God's glory, you're, you're just having the greater good in mind. You're flirting with the world, and it puts you in hostility with God. James wants us to see that what might look like a casual sin, the white lie, the, the outbursts that can be excused, these things we might say are not a big deal, but in God's eyes, we're running away from him. We're giving our heart to someone else, and in doing so, we're blocking out whatever love God is trying to give us. In, in the same way that that spouse having an emotional affair, can they really receive the love of their spouse? No, because they've given their heart over to someone else. I think we do that, spiritually speaking, it's the bride of Christ. We give our hearts to someone else, to, to the world system, and try to find satisfaction there. Now, as we move forward, James says something strange in verse 5. He says, or do you think that it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? I, I cannot pause to explain why I'm making this decision, but I'm going to read the ESV's rendering of this verse, and I'm go just going to say that they have it right. The way that they have it fits better with this marriage metaphor. I think it's the right way for us to understand what's happening. The ESV says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And, and I think this is a picture. We might think that it's just a casual thing for us to flirt with the world system. But when God looks at us doing that, he sees his bride and he's jealous for his bride. God is jealous for his people. He has a love for his people, and he wants his people to come back to him, to find satisfaction and love and rest in him, and he yearns jealously for us. Isn't that actually something really reassuring? So much of the sin that we commit is really driven by a desire just to be loved. And God is standing there saying, I'm jealous for you. I love you. I want you back. These, these things that you think will satisfy, these things that you think will love you, they don't care about you at all. They don't care if you move on to another lover once you burn through them because they, they don't love you and they can't do anything for you. But I love you. I want you. I'm jealous for you. Now, James is not quoting a particular verse, 
But he's referring to texts like Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 4, where God is described as a jealous God who wants his people back so he can love them and care for them and provide for them. Now, carrying on this marital infidelity metaphor a little bit further, you can imagine talking to that coworker who says, look, if you knew my husband, you, you would be glad for me that I'm finding emotional support outside of my marriage. But, but God isn't every other husband. And his jealousy is not the garden variety jealousy where someone who's being cheated on will go and off, off the spouse, you know, take them out so that they can get their, their spouse back and, and restrict them or something like that. God, God is not a spouse who's ever failed to give love. So, so it's not, there's no excuse to try to find love somewhere else. Instead, God is the kind of God who has a jealousy that finds an expression in grace. So a lot of spouses have jealousy that finds expression in, in um, holding o- things over their spouse or expressions of anger. Um, God's jealousy finds expression in grace, in a grace that doesn't push that cheating spouse away, but that welcomes them home, that calls them back. He doesn't take vengeance. He extends love, offering a kind of grace that the cheating, sinful soul could never expect to find. That's how we have a solution by seeing God's heart. Because God's heart is for us to come back to him so that he can show us love once again. So what's our response going to be once we see the heart of God? And it seems that whenever a marriage encounters infidelity, there always comes a moment where that infidelity is exposed, where one spouse figures it out and they reveal that they're aware of the text messages they, they've seen the hotel receipts. They, they know that the conference that you were at actually never existed. And instead, you were just meeting up with this person you're having an affair with. It, there's always a moment where the affair is exposed. And in an ideal situation, after making the revelation, the spouse will continue, but I still love you. I'm jealous for you. I, I don't want to let you go. I want you back. I, I don't want to try to punish you. I just want to love you. I just want to restore what, what we once had. And, but, but I can't love you if you're giving your heart to someone else. So come back to me. That, that's the ideal situation. That's what God is doing to us. And in that moment, the cheating spouse has two options. One option is to say, I don't care. I'm going to keep on with this affair because I'm finding satisfaction there. I'm finding comfort. I'm finding love there. I I love what I'm doing and I'm not going to stop and I don't care if it ruins this marriage forever. I I don't care if it separates us for the rest of our lives. That's a prideful response. When, When we're confronted with God's heart, we could respond with pride and say, God, I don't care about your love. I I don't trust that you actually love me. I don't trust that you can satisfy. I don't trust that you have my best interests in mind. So I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing, even if it means that I'm separated from you forever. And James's harsh implication is that it will separate us from God forever. But we have another option. The other option is one of humility and repentance to say, you're right. I've been cheating. I've, been trust, I've not been trusting you. I've been trying to find love somewhere else, but you're right. I'm sorry. I, I'm going to cut off that affair. Well, let me cut that off and draw close to you because you're drawing close to me with grace and love and warmth and affection. That's the option that we have. 
We can cut ourselves off from God, or we can submit to God. We can humble ourselves. That's why it says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The pride keep running away from God, and God's not going to force them. He's not going to force them to be with him. He's going to let them continue on their prideful ways. But the humble, he's going to keep welcoming back into his love. Therefore, verse 7, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist temptation. Resist fulfilling your desires and finding love and satisfaction somewhere else. And that, that temptation will go away. How many of us, if we had just resisted for five more minutes against a sinful temptation, would it have been gone? And would we have found that God was there to meet us all along? It doesn't mean that resistance will be easy, but it does mean that if you, if you give your heart back to God, if you take it out of the clutches of the world's system, then God's grace is big enough to free you from giving yourself to the devil, to the world, to your own flesh. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This hasn't always been the case for idolatrous Israel. Sometimes God would tell Israel, you've committed adultery, I'm sending you to exile. Well, God hasn't changed, but what has changed is that Jesus has come, and we've been given God's spirit so that now and forever, God will always be jealous for his spirit that he put in us, so he'll never send us away. He'll always draw us back. So repent, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. God isn't saying that he wants Christians to be solemn, gloomy people all the time. What he's saying is this. When, when you think about how much I love you and you consider the adultery that you were committing, that should cause you to weep. It's like the spouse who, when they recognize that their, their husband actually loves them, when they think about all of their dalliances, all of the flirtation, all the, of the affairs, it, it makes them weep and it makes them sad because they realize that they were throwing their lot in with someone who never loved them anyway. That's what God is saying. Realize that the spiritual idolatry, these idols of your heart, they never actually loved you. And it should bring us to tears. What used to bring us laughing and joy, that should now bring us sorrow. And we can find laughing and joy in the heart of God. So humble yourselves before the Lord and listen to this, and he will exalt you. Some spouses who receive their cheating spouse back after infidelity, those spouses, even though it seems like they're gracious, saying, come back, let's, keep, let's work on this marriage, someday down the road, they pull out the trump card and they say, because you once cheated on me. And, and they hold it against that spouse and, and you never know when it's going to pop up. So, so you're always living under fear that you'll be condemned for your former adultery. God doesn't do that. God is not that way. God will never bring up your former spiritual adultery again. Instead, he's going to exalt you. He's going to restore you. He's going to raise you up when you humble yourself before him. He'll never hold your failures over your head. So how will you respond? Will you respond with pride or will you respond with humility? There's one final caution embedded in this response when James warns against being double-minded once again. If you respond in humility, you have to give up all the other lovers. You, you can't keep any access points. You've you got to cut off your idolatry. 
down at the root level of the desire. You've got to end it. You've got to get rid of it. The 19th century poet Francis Thompson wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven, where he depicts God's love like a hound chasing after you, not to kill you, but to find you and to draw you back, to restore you. And he comments at one point in the poem that he knows it's God's love chasing him relentlessly, but he's still afraid to receive it. He's afraid to be found because he knows that if he allows God's love to capture him, that he has to abandon his love for the world in the world system. He has to love God exclusively and only receive love from God exclusively. This is the same for us. God's love is relentlessly pursuing you, but it demands your heart completely. So will you give it to him? In a moment, we're going to sing that Christ is ours forevermore. Let that be a prayer of confession, that Christ alone is yours. When we come to the Lord's Supper in a few moments, that prefigures in some way the marriage supper of the Lamb. Set aside all other loves as you come to Christ. Forsake all others for all of your days in this life and the next so that Christ will be yours forevermore. Let's pray that God will free us from our idolatry and draw us back into his love. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for showing us your heart for us. Would you allow the revelation of your heart to melt our own and to draw us back to yourself so that we'll set aside all of our flirtations with the world and its system, so that we'll set aside all other idols, and that we will live fully and exclusively before you, giving our heart to you alone, forsaking all others for the rest of our days. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.